This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Welcome to the Real Estate Financial Planner Podcast. I am your host, James Orr. This is Episode 5. Today we're going to continue with Andrea's story from the previous four episodes. In her original baseline scenario from Episode 1, Andrea utilized the Nomad Real Estate Investing Strategy and buys a property every year as an owner-occupant, putting 5% down each time. With each property, she moves into the property and lives there for a year to fulfill the requirements from the lender to get an owner-occupant loan with just 5% down and with a better owner-occupant interest rate. While she's acquiring properties, her account balance is dropping as she pulls out a 5% down payment and closing costs with each new purchase each year. But something interesting happens about her sixth property, five rental properties and the one she's living in. After she buys her sixth property in month 61, she realizes that between the net cash flow after all expenses that she's getting from the five rental properties and the return she's earning in the stock market, she realizes that even with the down payments and closing costs removed to purchase properties 7, 8, and 9, her account balance will continue to grow. In other words, her lowest account balance will be when she buys that sixth property. When she buys her last property, property number 9, 8 rentals and 1 to live in, it will be about 8 years after she started. She'll be 48 years old. At that point in time, in month 97, her bank account balance she has will be about $83,000, which we assume is primarily invested in stocks earning about 8% per year. Now, for someone that has nine properties, eight rental properties and the one she's living in, having $83,000 represents having about 5.1 months of reserves. The Real Estate Financial Planner software calculates reserves by taking the total of all the account balances and dividing it by the sum of all the operating expenses for all properties, plus all the mortgage payments, plus all of her personal living expenses. So let's break that down. First, it takes the total of all account balances. So in Andrea's case, it's all the money she has invested in her all-in-one account that she has invested in the stock market. Next, it divides the total of all the account balances by the sum of three things. All the operating expenses on her properties, plus all the mortgage payments, plus her personal expenses. For operating expenses, that includes property taxes, property insurance, any HOAs, landlord paid utilities, maintenance for the properties, any other property expenses, and any property management. Although in this case, we assume Andrea is managing the properties herself, unlike what we assumed in episode four. So in calculating her need for reserves, we assume that she needs to have all of the operating expenses plus all the mortgage payments on her properties and all her personal expenses. If we divide her total account balance by all the operating expenses on the properties plus all the mortgage payments plus all of her personal expenses, we get the number of months of reserves that she has. In this case, by the time Andrea buys her ninth property, she has just over five months of reserves saved up. Now, this is as good a time as any to have a brief discussion on reserves. If Andrea only had one rental property, 
it would be prudent for her to have six full months of reserves for all the operating expenses of the rental and her mortgage payments for both her rental and her personal residence, and ideally six months of reserves for her personal expenses as well. In an ideal world, she'd have this money set aside in a very low-risk account, like a savings account, that's not subject to market fluctuations. If she had two rentals, she probably still needs six months for each property. Now, to take this to an extreme example for a moment, if she had 1,000 rentals, the chance of every rental having something happen all at the same time is low. She probably could get by with less than six months per property. Although there are events that, COVID being a recent example, that could have impacted all her properties and personal living situation all at once, where having a full six months for each property is probably still a prudent decision. That begs the question, when, if ever, is it okay to have less than six months of reserves for property? I think most investors would agree that full reserves for the first property is a given. Many, I think, would agree with full reserves for the second property. I think an increasing number of investors would want to argue that you don't need full reserves for every property as the number of properties you have increases. But then you have events like COVID that could have impacted a large portion, if not all, of Andrea's properties. In cases like that, having full reserves for every property seems less risky. And you'll notice I've been saying full reserves, even though I stopped using the specific example of six months of reserves. I think many accountants, CPAs, real estate agents and brokers, financial advisors might suggest six months of reserves as being a reasonable amount for most people in these situations. I'll add in that it seems reasonable for most situations if you have that six months in a safe, easily accessible, non-volatile account like a savings account or a good portion in savings account and then the rest in maybe a CD ladder or a bond ladder, ideas that we'll discuss in future episodes. However, if Andrea wants to keep her reserves, like the $83,000 that she has when she's done buying properties, in something with higher returns, higher market volatility, and higher risk, is six months enough? This is a topic we discuss in the class, Everything You Learned About Deal Analysis Is Wrong where I introduced the quadrants with reserves, the return on investment, return on equity, and return in dollars quadrants, all with reserves. I'll put the link to that class in the show notes. If she decides to keep the $83,000 in the stock market, where the value can dip, maybe she needs more than six months of reserves because she really wants to have a full six months of reserves available to her when things get ugly. And things might get ugly with the stock market and the real estate market at the same time. So. For peace of mind, I might suggest that if you're going to keep the majority of your reserves invested in something with higher risk, higher volatility, and higher possible rates of return, something like the stock market, for example, maybe you should have 12 months of reserves per property. Now, I know that for some listeners, this seems extreme. I remember distinctly hearing six months of reserves for my account when I first started investing in real estate, and that seemed like an excessively conservative number at the time. We will revisit this idea in future episodes, especially in the advanced Real Estate Financial Planner podcast episodes, where you can see the impact of market corrections and random market conditions and why having ample reserves will keep you in the game. Back to Andrea. That means, in this case, with Andrea, she has about five months of reserves, 
which is less than the recommended six months of reserves if she had that money in something like a savings account. Instead, though, she has it invested in the stock market, which we'd normally recommend she have 12 months of reserves. But, and this is the main point of this episode, she either does not know about the recommendation for six to 12 months of reserves for property or chooses to ignore that recommendation and instead opts to use excess cash flow to pay off properties earlier. One might think, especially since we use how much debt she has as a measure of risk in some cases, that by paying off mortgages, she is reducing risk. We'll see how that plays out. Here's what Andrea does in this episode. Starting in month 120, year 10, she takes any excess cash she has over $50,000 adjusted up for inflation and uses that money to make payments toward paying off the lowest balance mortgage. Now, a couple of points about this. First, until she completely pays off a mortgage, making extra payments does not improve cash flow. Once she pays off the mortgage, the payment goes away and it does improve cash flow significantly at that point. But just because she paid off a little bit of her mortgage does not change her mortgage payment and therefore it does not improve cash flow. And because it does not impact cash flow until she pays off the mortgage in full, that does not help her achieve financial independence. Once she pays off the mortgage, it helps her qualify for having achieved financial independence. But until then, she is just converting relatively liquid net worth in the form of cash invested in the stock market to relatively illiquid net worth in the form of equity in a rental property. A second related point, the money she has invested in the stock market is earning our assumed stock market rate of return, 8% per year. When she takes that and opts to use it to pay down her mortgage, she is taking the money that was earning 8% and now is earning the mortgage interest rate that she is no longer paying. In other words, she goes from earning 8% per year to earning 3.125% per year. By taking any extra money over $50,000 adjusted for inflation and using it to pay down the mortgage on the lowest balance mortgage, she is able to pay off her properties much faster. Her first property gets paid off in month 131. That's seven months before she would have otherwise achieved financial independence in the baseline scenario from episode one. The reason I compare it to when she achieves financial independence from the baseline scenario from episode one is because by paying off the first mortgage, she does achieve financial independence. So by opting to be a little more aggressive with less months of reserves, she is able to achieve financial independence about seven months faster in this case. Of course, different people with different situations will see different results. In fact, that's the whole idea behind this podcast, showing how these types of ideas impact people in a variety of different situations. For Andrea, it means slightly improving her goal of financial independence, and for the most part, it means being able to live at a slightly higher standard of living. That's because paying off the properties is slightly better than having that extra money in the stock market with a 4% safe withdrawal rate. It's not all upside, though. Because she took money earning 8% in the stock market to pay off 3.125% mortgage debt, her overall net worth is lower. She would have had over $16 million in inflated net worth 40 years from now, compared to about $13.6 million if she paid off the properties early. 
That's almost $5 million in today's dollars when not paying off properties early compared to just under $4.2 million in today's dollars if she did pay them off early. That's about an $800,000 difference, not trivial. By aggressively paying down her mortgages, she has them all paid off by about month 291 compared to taking until almost month 455 if she did not pay them off early. Each time she completely pays off a mortgage, that mortgage payment goes away. That means the amount she is paying on her mortgage payments is lower by that one mortgage payment. It doesn't impact the rent she is getting on properties at all, but with each mortgage payment she pays off, that does improve cash flow. And because cash flow increases each time she pays off a mortgage, that means the cumulative total amount of cash flow she's collected over the entire scenario is much higher when she pays off properties early. For example, by year 40, she's earned about $6.7 million in cumulative cash flow from all the properties, compared to just over $5.1 million if she did not pay off properties early. This is what partially makes up for the money she did not earn having it invested in the stock market. She traded some stock market return upside in exchange for improved cash flow once she paid off the property. By paying off properties earlier, the equity in her properties goes up. She's taking money she had invested in the stock market and converting it to property equity after all. Because the equity in her properties has gone up and the returns from appreciation, depreciation, and to a lesser degree cash flow until she completely pays off the property do not change, that means that her return on equity from appreciation, depreciation, actually are worse when she pays off properties earlier. Again, it's the same dollar return, but the equity has increased, so the return she is earning on that equity is actually a little worse. The same with return on equity from cash flow until she pays off the property, and cash flow really increases with no mortgage. Eventually, her return on equity from cash flow when she has paid off properties does improve. Let's talk a little about risk. Remember, one of the ways we measure risk is to look at the total debt's net worth. Well, when Andrea is paying off debt, this improves her total debt to net worth a little bit. She has a similar amount of net worth and less debt. This makes sense. But another way we measure risk is to look at the total amount of debt she has compared to her liquid net worth, her account balances. Since she is using her account balances to aggressively pay off her mortgages, we have conflicting forces. On the one hand, her debt load is going down, but on the other hand, her account balances are going down too. In the end, using her account balance money to pay off debt results in a significantly higher measure of risk when we look at risk through the lens of total debt to account balance. That is, until she pays off all the properties. At that point, her risk is lower by having paid off all the debt. But by that time, her debt is relatively low compared to what the baseline scenario would have been at that point anyway. We previously talked about reserves. I'll add a few more things. First, every time she pays off a mortgage, she reduces the amount she needs in reserves because she no longer has to keep that mortgage payment in reserves. She still needs to keep all of her operating expenses for that property and all the other properties for that matter, but she no longer needs to keep the mortgage payment for a mortgage she has completely paid off in reserves. So her need for reserves goes down over time, 
faster than it does if she naturally waited for mortgages to be paid off. But lower account balances mean she has fewer months of reserves, especially after she starts paying down on the mortgages, but before she has completely paid off any mortgages. The $50,000 inflation-adjusted amount she is keeping in reserves works out to be a little more than four months of reserves. But overall, using her account balance to pay down mortgages means she has significantly fewer months of reserves, making it riskier to pay off mortgages than to just hoard the money in the stock market. Now, there's some nuance here because once she gets over a certain number of months of reserves, how much safer is it to have 12 more months of reserves? Not much, right? In conclusion, having Andrea reduce the amount in reserves and using that money to pay down her lowest balance mortgage faster does help her achieve financial independence a little bit faster, about seven months. It also leads to the potential for her to live at a slightly higher standard of living once she achieves financial independence. It does increase her risk in some ways, but reduces risk slightly when we look at total debt to net worth. One thing we did not discuss in this episode, but that we will visit in future episodes and especially in the advanced Real Estate Financial Planner podcast episodes, is how she is changing the characteristics of her risk from a more volatile, less predictable stock market risk to a, in quotes, guaranteed return of paying down a mortgage she has. She knows what return she's getting when she pays down that mortgage. It is the interest rate of the loan compared to the uncertain return, at least in real life, of the stock market. In the next episode, we will meet a new set of characters, Norm and Norma, and learn about their situation and their journey toward financial independence. Also, be sure to check out the Advanced Real Estate Financial Planner podcast to see how having variable property appreciation rates, rent appreciation rates, variable mortgage interest rates, variable inflation rates, variable stock market rates of return impacts Andrea as she pays down her mortgage with extra cash flow. I hope you've enjoyed this episode about Andrea. This has been James Orr with the Real Estate Financial Planner podcast. Bye-bye for now. Oh, I almost forgot. You can download the newest version of the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet for free. Just go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet to download it right now. It's amazing. Bye-bye for now.